Good morning. Thank you. I really like it when you respond. Um, it is the Advent series, all cards on the table. Advent doesn't technically start according to the church calendar until next Sunday, but there's a lot of flexibility because, you know, we don't have to be rule followers, you know. Uh, there is the sense in which it should start now. <clears throat> After Thanksgiving, we're thinking forward to what's to come already in our hearts, certainly. Advent has started, if we're counting it as Christmas is coming. In our culture, Advent has started, waiting on Christmas to get here. So it makes sense that we would would react in a way that the church should, responding to the culture, and immediately begin to point to Jesus. Because of this waiting that we're experiencing so easily becomes about Christmas Day when it should be about who Christmas, Christmas Day is about, right? We say all the time, remember the reason for the season, right? It's Jesus. But how about we actually live like we believe that is the case? Uh, I think that when I think about Advent, the first thought I have is hope. And this year, our, our series, Lighting the Candles, is going to be focused on hope. Traditionally, there's different symbols for each candle, but we've never done it traditionally. We uh, are carrying it through, emphasizing uh, some characteristic, some attribute, uh, some idea that surrounds the season. This year we're focusing on hope as we look into Scripture to find out the reason for our hope this time of year. And we'll be doing that beginning of the service. We'll be doing that in music. We'll be doing that in the reading of Scripture. We'll be doing that in the sermon uh, in, in hopes that the Spirit would indeed move and help us as a church, as individual members of this church and as a church together, celebrate Jesus as He should be celebrated this season. We're not going to be able to do that on our own, in our own strength. We all need hope. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in this morning, I don't know, I didn't speak with everyone this morning, I don't know how you are, how you woke up, what's going on in your family, in your life, but I know that we all need hope. We desire it. In fact, we search for hope. We search for hope in everything, and if we can't find it, we'll just pretend like we have it, right? Like, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal when your arm's broken. Or you, I mean, it's, oh, it's not, I'm okay. We're going to, and you just try to think of some reason to have hope. No matter what tragedies in your life, we search for it because we want to cling to life and hope. This anticipation of joy, this anticipation of having peace gives us the will to live, right? We continue on because we have hope in something. In a very real sense, hope is a future faith. It's knowing there's something to come that you can have confidence in. Only we foolishly place our hope again and again in insufficient things. We find ourselves disappointed and discouraged because our hope is wrongly placed in stuff, in creation, rather than the Creator. And so this morning, as I consider Advent and all that is to come in the next month, I wonder where is your hope? Where's my hope? What do we hope for? What do we hope in? Is it a person? Is it an ideology? A government? Is it this church? Is it a plan you have or an ability or skill you have? The person you hope to marry? The family you hope to have? The places you hope to go? The money you hope to make? We always find somewhere to put it. We're always looking forward to something. Searching for some reason to have hope. 
I think it's important that we stop and consider what are we hoping for and then what does that mean about how I live my life? Now it's evident in how we use the term that we don't fully understand it because we'll say things like, I hope the weather's nice or I hope it warms up in here. I hope I lose this Thanksgiving weight. Right? Or I hope the Cowboys win the rest of their games this season because it's their only chance to get in the playoffs. That's my house. And of course, we also have hopes for things of, of more significance, some deeper things. We hope for the restoration of broken relationships. We hope to, to one day have kids. We hope to one day have a family to love and to be loved by. We, we hope for the emotional well-being of ourselves and those we love. We hope for the physical well-being of ourselves and those we love. We hope for things of great, great significance. We hope for things with little significance. But in all of it, we're still placing our hope in temporary things. The stuff. The stuff we look forward to will always let us down if it's just stuff. No matter how good it is or how deep it is. Or how great your motivation is for hoping in it. And I think Christmas is the best time of year for observing our, observing our tendency to put our hope in the wrong places because we often make Christmas all about the festivities and the gifts, the good feelings, right? And I, don't get me wrong, I don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying those things. So, in fact, I think we enjoy gifts because our Father is a very generous giver. And I, I would say it's good to enjoy good gifts. It's good to enjoy giving good gifts. In fact, as I get older, that's what I enjoy most about Christmas is making other people smile or happy when I give them a good gift. That's a good thing. We should celebrate that, but it's wrong. It's in fact sinful to make those things ultimate and to put our hope in those things because we must not think that gifts are going to bring us the joy and peace we long to have. They'll always disappoint us. And you know this because You've opened a gift, and sometimes immediately you're disappointed. This person doesn't know me at all. Why would I ever want this? And sometimes, even if it is what you want, eventually you're going to want something else. It's not going to be lasting. It's a temporary satisfaction. You're trying to get a framework for thinking Christmas is all about Jesus. We've got to get a framework for it because our hearts want to make it about everything else. So what is this Advent, this waiting for something? What are we waiting for? We're waiting for that satisfaction, for that joy, for that peace, for there to be no more tears, for no more pain. And if you are thinking that there is something under the tree this year that's going to give you eternal satisfaction, it's not there. In Scripture, hope is a common theme. And we should always return to Scripture to get a right idea of what we're meaning to feel, what we desire to feel and think. And the only, the only thing about the hope we see in Scripture that's different than the hope that we find in the world is it's sure. It, it's not, not ever going to disappoint. The hope we find in Scripture is rightly placed in Christ. It's not an anxious wishfulness. Like, I hope this works out. It's already been accomplished. It's done in Christ. It's finished. We look to Him because we know the end. We know how this is going to turn out. So we look to the future with confidence and with enthusiasm because the hope we find in Scripture is a sense of peace and joy that allows us to rest. It's a future faith. We don't base our hope on 
probabilities that, that will fail us. It's probably going to be good, so let's hope for it. Our hope is in the promise of God, and our God never <coughs> fails. He is no liar, so everything He says is true, and it will be, and we can trust it, and in it we find hope. And everyone senses there's something beyond us. There's something to hope for. Everyone does. Every human who's ever lived knows there's something to hope for. And the gospel says there is something, rather someone, to satisfy the longing, to bring the lasting joy, to give us peace. And it's Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is our hope. The saints of old knew this. That was Advent for them, waiting for that Messiah. He came. He lived a perfect life. He gave up that life. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and He will come back and finish it once and for all. So we, in this second Advent, are waiting for Him to return. That's the point of Advent. And there is this thread of hope woven throughout Scripture, all within the Old Testament and every story we find in the text. There's this hope in all the prophecies made, this whisper, the shadows, this hints of coming redemption. In fact, these stories serve the purpose of giving us hope according to Scripture. Considering who we are and what we're called to do, Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So we have the Word of God, we have all, that, all of the Old Testament, all the New Testament coming together to instruct us, so that we might endure, to encourage us, so we can endure, and to give us hope. And this is the gospel story. That is the story of God and His people. We see the brokenness, we see the pain, we see the suffering, we see the emptiness in the worldly things, the disappointment, the discouragement. The earth as a whole cries out for rescue. But that's not the end of the story. There's hope. Christ, our King, who rules and reigns. The kingdom is here and now and will forever be. There's hope. There's reason to celebrate. And it's abundantly clear that we need hope to survive because we are hopeless to save ourselves. Yet God has made a promise. In the very beginning, He made a promise. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, He made a promise that one would come and crush the head of the serpent. And repair the brokenness and heal the wounds and wipe away the tears and put an end to the sadness, the fear, the pain, the suffering, this narcissistic conceit that separates us from the Father. It's going to be ended. From from the the line of David, a ruler, a king is coming. Once and for all, the creation would be redeemed. All things would be restored. The people of God would be restored to the Creator. And we celebrate this hope. This hope is Christ. And such a promise is a great reason for hope because of who the promise is coming from. Now, Advent, this is all an introduction to Advent, is an anticipation of the arrival of that salvation. It once was the first Advent, and it will be the second Advent, this arrival of once and for all glorification. The finished work of Christ on the cross will be consummated in His return. This hopeful waiting for the rescue, isn't to be done idly. Now, when we think of waiting, often we think of waiting rooms, right? Sit down, play a game on your phone, stare at the wall, whatever, just sitting there waiting. The DMV, 
the worst. This waiting for Jesus is not the DMV, praise God. This waiting is not to be done idly because we are the people of God. We are the body of Christ. There's work to be done. So there's more to this hope than just sitting and being hopeful. The word of God is beneficial to encourage us and give us a sure hope that will not disappoint, but it also equips us for the work to be done as the people of God. This is all brought together beautifully in the Christmas story. And that's what we'll take time to look at this next month. In the grand narrative of Scripture, there is this one story where the Lord who created the universe, sovereignly ruling over it, narrows our focus onto this one young couple in the little town of Bethlehem. And this town is a place that lacks worldly value. It's not very significant to the world at all, but biblically it has incredible significance. The Lord providentially orchestrates every detail of this couple's lives to bring them together in this town at this appointed time in history. In fact, there's so much going on in this story that it's easy to dismiss it as coincidence, but we must see that the Lord is providential in all of it. He meets every need they have. He even causes some unexpected things to happen to bring them to this point. They fall in love, and then God gives them a baby boy. And this child, through this child, would come the redemption of all of God's people, the restoration of all broken creation. Eventually, it would come. Because, of course, the story I'm referring to is Boaz and Ruth and their son Obed, the grandfather of King David. They stand, this family stands in the genealogy of Christ, who would be the redeemer of the world. Now, if you were thinking... Oh, it's the story of Jesus. Good. I got myself too. That was really good. <laughs> oh, this sounds just like Jesus. For, for the Advent season, we are excited to walk through the book of Ruth. We will call it Ruth, an Advent series. because We are filled with creativity. <laughs> now, Of course, Jesus' story is quite a bit different. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit miraculously. Joseph and Mary were not yet married. Boaz and Ruth conceived Obed naturally within the covenant of marriage. And yet still, the events surrounding these narratives are very similar, as you just heard a taste of it, which is why we are excited to walk through this. But today is going to be a bit of an introduction to the book of Ruth as we just had an introduction to Advent and we'll see them hopefully come together. I'm excited uh, to sit under the teaching of God's Word and every chapter of this book will be taught by someone different, which I told someone earlier, we're going to get to see how much the Holy Spirit's leading all of this. Uh, But the book of Ruth is a beautiful story. And as an overview, if you don't know it, this sermon's going to have some spoilers in it. Sorry, but I think it's actually good because the journey is going to be good nevertheless. In fact, it's very similar to the idea of having hope in Christ. We know how it ends. kind of makes the experience a lot more fun. So the book of Ruth, as an overview, there is a lady named Naomi. And I would say Naomi is really the main character of Ruth, though the book is called Ruth. Uh, Naomi is married to a man. I'm not going to tell you the names. I want to encourage you to read it. 
But I don't want to say them one way and then have others say them a different way. And you're like, how do you say it? So you read it and decide how you want to pronounce it. But I will say Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz because they're the ones we're going to be talking about today. Um, but Naomi is married to a man and she has two sons and they're, they're in the land of Judah. They're from the tribe of Judah and they go into Moab because there's a famine. And in Moab, the sons marry Moabite women these foreigners who were actually enemies of Israel, um, but they marry Moabite women, and things go bad. Dad dies, both the sons die, now we have Naomi the widow and her two daughters-in-law who are also widows. And their only hope is to go back to Judah uh, to see what can, go, or what can come from the family that they have there, even though it's been quite some time. Timeline here in the book of Ruth is very interesting because there's about 10 years in Moab, which is taken care of in like two verses, and then about a year in back in Judah and only about two days or so that we really see emphasize a day that Ruth goes to work and a day that Ruth is married and conceives a child. I told you they're spoilers. <laughs> Whew, she gets married. <laughs> it's a great story. Just hang in there. So they come back to Judah and, and Naomi tells her daughters-in-law, go to your home, go back to your home. Don't stay with me. It's better for you to be with your family. And they, they weep because they love their mother-in-law and, and they, they want to care for her and they know the pain is, is difficult and they want to share in that grieving. I eventually, almost said her name. I told you I wasn't going to say names. One of the daughter-in-law, her name's Orpah. I'll just say it. It's okay. Orpah, who I think Oprah is named after. I heard that once. I don't know if it's true. <clears throat> goes back to her hometown and Ruth demonstrates a kindness like no one has ever seen and stays with her mother-in-law, though she doesn't have to. Not only does she stay, but she goes to the field and she works to provide for her mother-in-law. And coincidentally, we'll see a lot of that. There's not truly a coincidence in this story. But coincidentally, the field she's working in this area belongs to a man named Boaz, who happens to be the kinsman of Naomi. And so they can redeem this family. So Naomi gets really excited about this and tells Ruth, okay, we got to come up with a plan. we got to get this man. He's going to marry you, and he's going to save the family. And they, they orchestrate this thing that God is sovereign over all of it. And Boaz is immediately attracted to what he sees in Ruth, and he wants to make her his bride. But he's a noble man, and there's a closer kinsman. He goes to him first, and he says, hey, look, you can buy back this land. This is your kinsman. And the guy's like, for sure, I want to buy back that land. That's my land. And he's like, oh, yeah, and you're going to have to marry this Moabite woman named Ruth. And he's like, oh, well, you see, I had this other thing going on, and I forgot what happened was. And he backs out of it because he's not going to marry a Moabite, which is great for Boaz because he loves this woman. And they come together, and they're married, and, the, and things are restored to Naomi. She was once broken and bitter, And Ruth conceives a son named Obed, who is the grandfather of King David, Jesse's dad. Obed is Jesse's dad, not this Jesse. And there we have it, the story of Ruth summarized for you. Of course, there's a lot into it, so that's why we're going to go four more weeks going into it. But we see this beautiful picture of how God would demonstrate this beautiful, loving kindness in Ruth and in Boaz and in Naomi and virtually every character in the story. 
Some scholars want to make this story an ideological fiction, but I think we have sufficient evidence to say that it is a nonfiction short story. It's unwarranted to say that it's a not, I mean, a fiction story, although they, they come up with their reasons because of this time and place that it, it happens and the, the quality of the characters involved and how everything seems to be so perfectly in place and everyone seems so kind and wonderful in the story just can't be true. But I, I believe we have a cornucopia. I just thought it would be a good word to use this time of year. Of internal and exter- external evidence that tells us this is a true story. In fact, we know these are real people. There's a, line- there's a lineage given. We know that it's a real place. We know that it's a real point in history. And this unknown author has a purpose in writing it for the people to know that King David has a noble lineage. Now, Ruth is a real life love story. It's captivating. It's suspenseful. It's compelling. It's heartwarming. It's questionably scandalous interracial love story. It has a hero, a heroine, a damsel in distress. It's, it's brief but loaded with drama. There's tragedy and loss and despair. But also there's rescue and redemption and restoration. There's a lot going on in this wonderful story. And to be clear, there is not a Nicholas Sparks novel or romantic comedy that measures anywhere near the quality of Ruth. There's... There's not Romeo and Juliet or the Twilight series or any Disney princess or Fifty Shades or whatever you're into that comes anywhere close to the beauty and love that's in Ruth. And this isn't hyperbole. Many scholars would say Ruth is one of the greatest love stories ever written. The quality of the writing, the content, the characters. First of all, it's an actual story unlike many of these fantasies that we create because we want this perfect love story. But moreover, the loyalty, the kindness, the love, the hope, the redemption we find in Ruth all points to a faithful Savior. It's all about Jesus. So what that means is, like every girl's dream to be the princess in a story, we're in this story. This love story has eternal significance that is specifically significant to us. Because it's about Jesus, who's loved us. It's a love story, not just for Ruth, it's for you, and it's for me. It's for the people of God. Ruth is a book of hope and promise. That's why we see it so easily connected to Advent. For all of God's people, there is hope and there is promise in the coming of Christ. And it it is a, a narrative about the sovereign work of the Creator in all of life. And He cares for those who have... who gone without and who are in distress. He cares for those who are under his sovereignty. So if there's any bad guy, this is difficult to say, if there's any bad guy in the book of Ruth, it's God. Because he brings a famine. He takes the life of the husbands. God's sovereign, right? So it forces us to reconcile what doesn't really need to be reconciled. How God is at work in all things for his glory and our good. He cares for those who turn to him and follow him. And the story is the outworking of his providential plan for the restoration of all things. He's plotting behind the scenes for our good, even when it seems tragic. 
That's pretty incredible for a short story to accomplish. But this, this in itself isn't what I find most interesting about the book of Ruth. I think what's most interesting to me is how remarkably normal it is. It's, it's about a couple of seemingly insignificant women, uh, a sonless widow and her daughter-in-law, who's also a sonless widow. They're struggling to deal with life. What do we do? There's tragedy. How do we handle this? Where do we go? Who do we trust? And we find reason for hope in this story when they find reason for hope in this stranger who is over the top kind to them and a series of coincidences. That was air quotes. I don't know if you saw this. Don't get me wrong. This is a fascinating story, but it's very ordinary. I mean, it's just real life stuff. There's not a splitting of the Red Sea or feeding of the 5,000. No one's walking on water. There's not dream interpretation. There's no casting out of demons. It's just family. It's life. It's difficulty. It's struggle. It's every day. It's marriage. It's just life. Yet it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And it captivates the reader. Though the Lord can seem so far from us at times, He's always at work. And we get to read the story of someone just like us, experiencing life from the perspective of the narrator, the narrator who sees God working. Just a little bit of background so we can frame this up. The story takes place during the days of Judges. We know this because of some deep study into the book. The first verse tells us it's during the time of the Judges. You guys are like really with me. Oh, he studied this. It's during the time of Judges. Uh, So if you're not familiar with the Bible or the Old Testament, Judges is a time that comes after Joshua dies. So Moses led the people out of Egypt in the wilderness. And then Joshua actually led them into the promised land. And he helps capture some land or capture, you know, capture land, take over some land. Um, by the grace of God, through the power of God, and Joshua dies. And things go crazy. In fact, the people stop trying. They have the law, but they're not following it. They're, they're doing whatever the Canaanites are doing, the enemy. They're just becoming a part of the custom, sacrificing children, like absurd, crazy things. The book of Judges is a dark book. It's bloody and it's epic, but it's very dark and sad. Great bedtime stories. Israel fails to follow the ways of God, and so he sends judges. That's the title of the book. These men and women come to judge the people of God and tells them, you need to repent, and then leads them to fight for their freedom because they've been captive mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically made captives of the enemy. So they fight for their freedom, They get their freedom, and they fall right back into the same trap. This happens again and again. Wash, rinse, repeat. Judge after judge comes through. Some you may have heard of, just to name a few, Deborah, Gideon, Samson. These are judges from the book of Judges. So this is the time period in which Ruth takes place. Not when it's written, but when it takes place. This is the scene, this dark, dark scene. To give you an idea of the mindset of the people during this time, the book of Judges ends with a very sad but true statement. Judges 21-25, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which would be a horrible place to live. 
Now, there's no king in Israel. There, there's not yet a king. There's not been an appointed king. The time of Judges was before the kings were appointed and after slavery in Egypt, after wilderness, as I told you, after Joshua leads them to actually enter the promised land and everything goes bad. To, to bring back a term that we used when I was in high school, it, the people are buck wild. That's, I find that most fitting. It's buck wild. Just everything goes. <laughs> it's, oh, that's a weird term. Maybe I shouldn't have brought it back. You know what? No, I'm owning it. Let's keep it. All right. So this is where we find the book of Ruth, this beautiful, wonderful oasis this break from the craziness of Judges is where Ruth starts. It actually comes directly after Judges in Scripture. These three main characters, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, are seen as noble, strong, loving, kind, and faithful people. This is expressed in their very character. This is period of the Judges wouldn't allow for that. Everyone was buck wild. So how is it that... Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz are so noble. Some would say this is so odd that that's why it has to be fictional. But I would say a sovereign God who beautifully orchestrates everything would would have it be as a respite, as as a breath of fresh air, this beauty in the midst of the storm. This story becomes even more meaningful given its context or content and its context. It's a welcomed relief. Now, given the way that this book ends with the genealogy leading up to David, we can see pretty clearly that the author of this story had his main purpose to point out the sovereignty of God and the ordinary, seemingly coincidental occurrences of the story. Uh, that would be an underlying uh, episode, these underlying episodes to God's demonstrating his his providence to, leads to David. So he's pointing to this noble character in the ancestry of David that This is why he's our king. This is who he is. This is what he's made of in the dark, chaotic Israelite environment that was in Judges. We have this, the people of God who would lead us, the people of God. Those were the days of Judges. So this beauty, this this beautiful development of of this theme in the story is obvious as we walk through it. But also there's some other themes, the emptiness to fullness, the bitterness to joy that we see in Naomi, an extension of grace beyond Israel as Ruth worships the true God and not the gods of the Moabites. The significance of women as co-heirs of salvation and their importance in Scripture and in the church today. Godly women to be emulated by women of God. In fact, Boaz calls Ruth a virtuous woman, which is the Proverbs 31 woman. So we have a real life example, not just this made up woman. And of course, the vindication that we see, the story pans out to point to something greater, a bigger story, something much bigger than all of us in any one story in Scripture, the redemption of the bride of Christ. And another interesting point is, that the book is titled Ruth. I think that it should be odd in their, in their culture, but even to us, because she's, a, she's not a man and she's not a Jew. Ruth is a Moabite woman. So you may remember that the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters is what brought about the Moabite people. Uh, but moreover, there was a time in which Moabite women seduce some men of God into sexual immorality, resulting in God, this God of justice, destroying thousands of Israelite men. 
So as you might imagine, Moabites, specifically Moabite women, had a certain kind of reputation among the Israelites. And we have here a book of the Bible named after one of them. So one, only one of two women have a book named after them, Esther, who was an Israelite or a Jew, and she was noble. And we have Ruth, a Moabite woman, widow, who, by the grace of God, is also noble. Coming out of a people who were known for their evil in a time period where even the people of God were evil, we have Ruth, an Jew, a Moabite, and a woman. This book is named after her. What's the point of telling you all that? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are other options for the title. One commentator wrote, based on the plot of the story, it would be more appropriately titled the book of Naomi. Based on the dialogue, it would be titled the book of Boaz. There's some 85 verses in the book, and about 50 of them are dialogue, and Boaz does most of the talking. Based on the apparent purpose of the author, the book would be better titled the book of Obed. But no doubt, the present title reflects the narrator's fascination with and the reader's fascination with the special admiration, the character of Ruth. So though everyone in the story seems to be a good guy, Ruth's character stands out. It's titled after Ruth because of who she is. Not because of how much she does, but because of her character. Now it's the character of Ruth that actually makes her desirable to Boaz in the first place. And it's in her character that we find loyalty and kindness, a loving kindness that actually has a special Hebrew word that we can't fully translate into English. And the word is hased. You may have heard it. There's a ghost ship song called hased. It's actually more guttural, so it's hased. But I'm not going to do that because I didn't bring a towel with me to clean up. Hased is typically translated kindness. And so it's, it's, a, it's one of the most valuable attributes of God, especially in the Old Testament. This word they give him to describe the Lord, most often it describes the Lord. And, and Ruth specifically, talk, we, the word is used a lot to describe God. To give you two examples, right off in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 8, the second part of it says, May the Lord deal kindly with you. This is Ruth speaking to her daughters-in-law. As you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord deal, deal kindly with you. And then in chapter 2, verse 20 And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord. This is talking about Boaz. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So she's recognizing God is kind. God is said. May he be kind to you, and may he be kind to Boaz. This is her, these are prayers that God would demonstrate this said to her daughters-in-law and to Boaz. Now the word, and this happens a lot in, in the text. Now the word means more than kindness, though. It's just the best way for us to translate it. So it, it has a strong relational uh, connotation to it. There's a relational term that the virtues of God, virtually every virtue of God, every positive commutable attribute of God is wrapped up in this word. That's the best way to describe it. It's kind of like 
than the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit. It's one thing, but because we can't really describe it, let's say all these things about it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what your life should look like. That's, in a sense, what we're saying about said. I say commutable because it, it's an attribute that God possesses that we can possess by the grace of God. So, in itself, wrapped up in itself is mercy and grace and kindness and goodness and benevolence and loyalty and covenant faithfulness. And it's all expressed in love. Love for one another and God's love for us. Hesed is, in short, the quality that motivates and moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect for how it may benefit the giver. So it's, it's kind of like altruism, only it doesn't necessarily require sacrifice. It could be beneficial to you, but you do it without respect to how it benefits you. It's, I told you, it's hard to get it into English. But your feet, you sense it, right? The kindness of the Lord. So when we think kindness, it's just not enough. But that's how we're going to say it, so we don't have to write a paragraph every time it's used. Has said, proceeds and gives rise to covenant. So coming out of this series we were just in, understanding covenant in hopefully a new way, this I give 100%, you give 100%, and even if you fail, I'm still going to give my 100%. This idea of covenant comes out of Hesed, this relational term. It is attributed explicitly to Ruth and Ruth alone in this book, of course to God, but the only person who has this attribute said specifically and explicitly about them is Ruth. I believe all the characters possess it. All the characters demonstrate it. But Ruth explicitly in Ruth chapter 3 verse 10, Boaz says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or poor. Or rich. Now this happens after he already recognizes Hesed in her and how she loves Ruth. I mean, loves Naomi. He's saying, this is even greater than how you love Naomi. You're showing it to me. And so he, he prays that she would be blessed for her kindness. Hesed is to be a characteristic of all of God's people. The book of Ruth, along with all of Scripture, is for all the people of God. We often read it as an individual and we apply it as an individual when really most often it's applied to all the people of God. We need to understand it in terms of plurality and in terms of community. So the message here in Ruth for us applying to us today is we are to be ordinary people achieving extraordinary gains by way of kindness, loyalty, faithfulness, etc. expressed in love towards others. That, that we, the people of God, would see there's reason for hope in Christ because of Hesed. And it's demonstrated through us in Hesed. This is so, so prevalent in this, this, this book. It's, it's totally unavoidable. I, I think it's obvious this is how the people of God should act because of the way it's everywhere. In a book that God is so clearly sovereign and there's so much tragedy and reason for sorrow and bitterness, we see the loving kindness again and again. Even, even Naomi, who changes her name to bitter, says to her daughters-in-law, 
Go to be with your people. That's a demonstration of Hesed. She wants what's best for them. Even though she's going to be alone without anybody, she wants what's best for them. Even in the midst of her tragedy and bitterness. No one in the story, no one in the story seeks his or her own needs above anyone else. Except for maybe the guy who says, I'm not going to marry the Moabite. (laughs) But even he was looking after his future. No one even goes to God and requests divine intervention on behalf of themselves. It's always for others. On the contrary, we see constantly this work for, this prayer for, the welfare of others, actions, blessings, expressions of gratitude for others. It's so incredibly others-oriented. And that is how the people of God should behave. So it's obvious that this story is an oasis in the ethical wasteland of the time of Judges. And the characters demonstrate the beauty of the people of God by the grace of God for all of Israel and for all the people of God who would ever come. The measure of a people's faith is not found in miracles and and extraordinary things. It's not found in experience. It's, It's not found in knowledge It's evident that it's found in Christ. It's evident that it's found by way of expressing in our actions love. No one's going to look at your life and say, he's healthy, he's wealthy, he must belong to God. But they can look at your life and see has said and only give credit to Jesus because only he makes it possible. And James writes about this very thing when he says in James 2.17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The desire of the author was to emphasize the character, the heritage of King David. And that was totally applicable to the people of his time, his or her time. It could have been a female author. Some even say it might be Ruth. I don't know. That's why I keep saying the unknown author. The unknown author Wanted to get across this point. I will tell you, most likely it was Samuel. That's what most scholars say, but this doesn't really matter. The unknown author was trying to get across this point. that The character of the people of God in the line of David was noble and beautiful and full of said. But for us, centuries later, we see still prevalent today as we are still waiting the coming of a Messiah Though he already came, we're waiting on his return. In fact, several centuries after this book was written, in the providence and grace of God, there was another young woman who was favored and blessed by the Lord. In fact, Mary was more blessed than any. She, too, would bear a son, one who would be greater than the son of Ruth, greater than the great-grandson of Ruth, King David. Mary's son would be the incarnate son of God. And Jesus came and offered himself as the epitome of Hesed. So that all of his people, both past and present and future, could demonstrate Hesed. Now we see this application for us. We know that Christ is true, the true and better David. We know that Christ is the true king. And we will we'll see him as the king during Christmas. But we so often will be conformed to the ways of the world. We'll so often be sucked into the trappings of this season. We'll so often put our hope in other things that we need to return again and again and again to see Christ as King. 
and place our hope in Him. This Advent season will present itself with materialism and and consumerism that's already taken place and will continue to take place. It'll be very easy to give in to temptation at every turn. Moreover, even if you can get your mindset right, you'll give in to the temptation of complacency and just sit and enjoy the warm, good feelings of the season. But for us, the people of God, neither demonstrate the work of God in our lives. We should be at rest for sure, but we are to be at work. At work studying the word of God to see the the beauty of the Advent season come out of the pages of scripture to allow the spirit of God to use his word to give us faith, to renew our minds, to stir in our hearts greater affections for the king. We have to dive in. We have to eat and feast on the word of God as we stuff ourselves with ham and turkey. We have to feast on what's true and what's right, what gives us life. This is our only hope. Let us elevate the word of God that we could see Christ elevated in our hearts. The only way we're going to be able to put hope in Christ is if we know who he is. So there's work to be done. And we as the people of God are to be at work redeeming Christmas from the culture that stole it in the first place. It wouldn't make sense if we just went along with everything. Some questions need to be asked. Now it's for you and your own convictions to decide how and when and where to change certain things. But it's incumbent upon us as believers, as the people of God, to make it about Jesus. Not just say, make it about Jesus, but make it about Jesus. Do the work to make it about Jesus. Examine your heart and identify your misplaced hope daily, every hour, every moment anxiety rises up in you. Know that your hope's in the wrong place. Every, every moment that you're worried about how something's going to turn out, if you're going to burn the cookies or your kid's not going to like their gift or is your house going to burn down because you left the Christmas tree lights on or whatever you're worried about, remember, it's about Jesus. Not just at Christmas, but praise God, we have a time of year where the entire world takes pause to remember Jesus. So let us have the loudest voice in praising Him in all of this. We have hope in Christ, the evidence of that hope. So you'll know you're not hoping in Christ when you're anxious. How do you know when you are? The evidence of that hope is set. You'll know because you love, you serve, you're others oriented. You're about Jesus and all of life. So is Christ above all? Do you believe he is the ultimate source of your peace and your joy? Do you long for him to return? There's much that is not right with the world. There's a lot of reasons to feel hopeless, but we have hope in Christ and we celebrate him. We look to him expectantly because he will return. He said he would. And we live in light of that truth. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your coming and your returning. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for demonstrating that loving kindness in so many ways, giving us your word giving us the freedoms in this nation to celebrate you explicitly and loudly. Showing us that even uh, seasons such as Advent and Christmas that are, that are so much about worldly things can still be redeemed to the glory of Christ. 
Thank you for showing us how dependent we must be on your spirit to move and work in us. Thank you for showing us in the book of Ruth that our ordinary lives can be incredibly significant when we reorient them around your will, your calling, the work of your gospel. Help us as the crossing church to be a church known for Jesus above all else. For how we celebrate your grace. How we live with hearts filled with thanksgiving. With great anticipation for your return. Overwhelmed with gratitude for your first coming. And celebratory. Because you love us. Let us live in light of this and how we love others and how we love one another. That you would be glorified in all of it. In Jesus name. Amen.